Welcome to Cafe Classroom. I'm so happy to have you here. And I'm Christina Hoff Summers. I will be your teacher this afternoon. And I am from the United States. I, for many years, I was a philosophy professor. And then I moved to a think tank. And I've been at the American Enterprise Institute for almost 20 years. And I write, I'm paid to think. And I write books about, uh, a lot about feminism, gender politics. And I started to do this because many years ago, uh, the chair of my department asked me to teach a course in feminist theory. This was in the 80s, long before any of you were born. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm a theorist, I'm a feminist, why not? And I knew the history of, you know, the great feminist philosophers from Mary Wollstonecraft or John Stuart Mill. But I, I was new to feminist theory. The texts came, I will never forget this, it was the summer of 86, 86, and I was just shocked by what I encountered because it was a complete break from the tradition of feminism that, that I love, which is about sort of extending basic principles of democracy and, you know, sort of uh, liberal constitutional tradition, extending the right to life, liberty, happiness, to women, this equal rights under, under the law. That's called uh, variously equity feminism, liberal feminism, uh, equality feminism. And I'm a strong believer in that. Uh, it, it has liberated women. It's one of the great chapters in the history of human freedom. Women in the West, for the, you know, there are still some unresolved issues, but overall the doors have been open and women are self-determining is more than any probably in the history of the world. Something to be proud of. But in these feminist theory texts that were coming from my colleagues, including some friends, it was very harsh and didn't really admit that we'd made progress. And was actually captive to the idea that we all live in this sex-gender system, the patriarchal, oppressive male hegemony. And I just thought, well, uh, what is the evidence for that? Because, I, I mean, I see progress. I don't see oppression. Don't, I, it seemed absurd. What I discovered fairly early on, and then would go to write a book about this called Who Stole Feminism, was that these radical theories were based on a foundation of false assumptions about the world, distorted statistics. They just didn't get the facts right. Now, I don't know what came first. The, the very negative, hostile theories about our society and how terrible it was for women, or the statistics. Now, let me be uh, more specific. Uh, one of the theorists I read was Catherine McKinnon, a very charismatic legal scholar and very extreme. And she, she described the world that women inhabit, including in Australia, the United States, and, uh, as a, a kind of... Uh, a, a male hegemony, she said, which is the most powerful system of oppression in the history of the world, that the oppression of women was so powerful and overwhelming that it was almost invisible, that even the victims, all women, didn't know it. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm a victim. What is she? So, and then she said that half of women are raped, half battered, one in five is a prostitute and can't get out of it. And, I looked for the sources of this extraordinary data because, you know, it didn't ring true to any society, <laughs> American society or any of the society she was talking about. 
And her references were to other sort of hardline, I came to call them gender feminists because they believed in the sex gender system. You could call them radical feminists or hardliners. That she didn't really have statistics. She didn't have conventional sources because she believed that those were created by the patriarchy. You can't trust them. We, women are even epistemologically disadvantaged because men created all the knowledge and so forth. It was a total system. It was, it, what shocked me is that how exciting it seemed to be to many young women. And I th see it as a conspiracy theory. And it can't be falsified if you try to show that the world is not that way. That just shows you're part of the problem that they're trying to solve or you've internalized the system. So I challenged the, the statistics. I challenged what I thought were the twisted theories. But most of all, I said, how does this help young women? Y young women in the world are, you know, coming into their own. And at the moment where they're poised to really start joining men in running the world and moving ahead in the professions, and in fact, leading men in the dust education, in, in higher education. At that very moment, we are giving them these, these strange theories that might be appropriate for women that lived in, under gender apartheid and you know, Saudi Arabia, not appropriate for the United States. There was a radical distortion of reality. And I looked at the, I, I tried to find the best data I could, like how oppressed are women? What are the real, the best we can determine. So what I started to do was just look for good sources. The best sources I could find were from the, like the Bureau of Justice Statistics in the United States. They have just legions of trained statisticians who don't have an agenda, they just want to figure out like levels of crime and how things are. Their numbers were in, so, there was just a difference, she was exaggerating out of all proportion without data and yet you had the Bureau of Justice Statistics, for example on campus, she and her colleagues would say like one in four girls is being raped. The Bureau of Justice Statistics looked at the campus and found that it was like, well, more like something one in 40 to one in 50. That's still too high, but it's not one in four. One in four would be like a war-torn Congo. That does not describe, you know, Wells, well, let's think of a co any college that I've been to in the United States. It doesn't describe any place in the United States. But she, they had their own methodology and they just weren't interested in showing what I found to be more reasonable sources. Now, you would have thought that, I thought, that when I wrote this book, and it wasn't just me, a lot of feminists complained. And we also found it demonizing of men, div dividing men and women you know, along the fault line of gender, and undermining young women, their confidence, and, and making them afraid when they should be sort of ready to take on the world. So I don't think women are helped by these theories. And the sad thing is that equity feminism, this theory that I love, sort of got left behind. And in a typical women's studies class, even today, it's just dismissed, a relic of the past. And some version of Catherine McKinnon's theory about an oppressive patriarchy. That's what typically young women learn. These textbooks did not even bother to provide the counterpoise. I mean, I had taught philosophy many years. I thought it was a sacred commandment. Thou shalt teach both sides of the argument. I didn't mind having Catherine McKinnon there. She's brilliant and it's worth, certainly worth reading. But where were the criticisms? And very often they wouldn't be there. 
the, the, re the readings in a typical feminist theory class were mutually reinforcing. And so there would be a total immersion in the sort of paranoid view of the world and no pushback. So I, I wrote a book called Who Stole Feminism? And I defended the equity tradition. I was critical of radical theories and I tried to expose this the, the, the distortion in the numbers. And I thought that um, the feminist, my feminist colleagues would be happy with that, and some were, but overall I was considered, uh, I was excommunicated, I was excommunicated, I lost friends. Um, I was excommunicated from a religion I didn't know exist, existed. But it's still there, it's, it's getting stronger now, it's sort of, I wasn't so worried in the late 90s, it seemed like things were coming back to a reasonable middle ground and there were new sorts of voices in feminism but somehow in the I don't know around 2010 11 as things began to change on the college campus and social media you, you begin to get this a kind of uh, very orthodox dogmatic radical version of feminism and a lot of again fake or distorted statistics and again I try to go on and do other things, but this, it never gets resolved because it always comes back, this radicalism, and is just something that apparently a lot of young women find irresistible. The, fin the final thing I'll say about it is that equality feminism connects you to the whole world because it's about, well, teaching everyone about our shared humanity. Whereas today, McKinnonism, or now some versions of intersectionality, are more like, oh, let's unite around a common enemy. Now, common enemy politics don't have a good history. But inclusive, you know, let's find what we all have in common. It's the noblest tradition in, in the world. And the great philosophers, I mentioned before, Wollstonecraft and John Stuart Mill, Later, in the suffrage movement in the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Sojourner Truth, I was hoping that these would be read respectfully and with interest in the feminist theory classes, but often the, it's, it's just called, oh, well, that's just first wave feminism and it's dismissed as uh, racist and they, they, were only, they only cared about the rights of rich, middle, you know, well, uh, you know, placed, uh, high pla highly placed uh, elitists. Uh, that wasn't true, they were fighting, what? It's for elitists that women get the right to vote? The, the first wave and second wave equality feminism brought, found just fundamental changes that opened the world to women and, uh, and made equality with men possible. That, all women want that. I mean, not all women want that, but women throughout the world want that. And uh, there are these fledgling feminist movements now in every country in the world, and I've been to international conferences, and they want American women to make common cause with them, but you will not find that many feminists, you know, activists on our campuses connected to these struggles in countries like Egypt and in Saudi Arabia and Iran. They're more focused inward on their own oppression and how the young men in their school are oppressing them. This is insane, this is absurd, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> so the positive reason for bringing back equity feminism and for giving a more, uh, I think, fair treatment of it is that that's what's going to take us to the next stage. Because what I think, the, there's been a lot of 
uh, debate about what gets to be third wave feminism. I don't think we've had it yet. We've had first wave, that was the suffrage movement. The second wave was the 60s and 70s, and that was liberation and a lot of laws <laughs> that sustained that liberation. I think the third wave should be equality, real equality. And right now, the current generation has a chance for that. But the answer to uh, male supremacy is not female supremacy, male chauvinism. The answer is not female chauvinism. It's mutual respect. And that's why today, I hope I, you will give equity feminism a chance. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ravi Prasad from Parliament on King. Aside from the cafe, we also have a social enterprise catering business. We work exclusively with members of the asylum seeker and refugee community. We make food from their homeland the way they make it at home. Uh, if you'd like to support the work we do with the asylum seeker and refugee community, just click the link below, which you see in the comments. Thanks for supporting the work we do.